Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guests are C. Von Hassett and his wife, Rachel Reed Wilkie. They are co-conspirators in all things, including founding the Riot Material magazine. C is a one-time professor of literature, a decades-long practitioner of Zog Chin, and the author of the book Entering the Mind. Rachel has a 20-year career in fashion, including directing Calvin Klein's global design team from New York City, creative director for Seven of All Mankind, and designing and tailoring custom leather jackets for influential artists such as Iggy Pop, Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Tom York, Zendaya, among numerous others. Today we'll be discussing the book Entering Mind, which is richly poetic and deeply insightful exploration of that transformative wisdom practice known as Zog Chen. Guys, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for having us. All right. Since I'm new to Zogjin and probably a lot of my audience is, can we first just start by having you give us a brief overview of what it is? Yeah. Zogjin is probably one of the only meditation practices on the planet. And if they say they speak to it, uh, these great masters say it's, it's being taught throughout the universe and 13 solar systems throughout the universe. So we it's being taught here on on earth. Um, but it's basically a very clear teaching that points you directly into your innate state of awareness, which is, it's, it's, it's the awareness that gives rise to all of our perceptions and our body and the the way we interact with the world. Hmm. That awareness is filled with, um, our ego, our sense of a self. And so Zogchen points you down below all that and it allows you to recognize it and then just kind of rest and observe it. That's all it's doing. Is this something that comes from China or Japan? Well, the Tibetans perfected it. The Tibetans for centuries, uh, basically all the highest masters, including the, those running the, the, the government of sorts, they were, they were all practitioners of Dzogchen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes from India. It goes way back through, through history and then beyond. Would you say that this is the original meditative practice of Tibetan masters? It's not necessarily the original, um, but it's that which um, began almost 3,000 years ago. Um, and it stemmed from the um, the Indian Buddhist Buddhism that was there at the time. And of course, um, Buddhism itself has spread into many different schools. Dzogchen is one of those schools, but um, it was Dzogchen was secret for many, many thousands of years. And it's only really since the invasion of Tibet and the ex- the dispelling of some of the great Tibetan masters when they actually exiled in Western civilization, um, whether it was America or Europe, that um, for the beginning of all time, Dzogchen was then um, considered um, um, a teaching that could be shared with the Western societies. 
Is it something that's commonly used by, you know, Tibetan or Buddhist monks? Yes. Yes, it is. It's a living tradition. It's the Dalai Lama's a practitioner. That's right. The Dalai the Dalai Lama. He himself is a is a practitioner of Dzogchen. Yes. Oh wow! Uh, you said something, and I've got it. I can't let this go. You were talking. This was being practiced on other planets. Yes. So, are you saying that it was brought to Earth from another planet? Well, you see, consciousness is not earthbound. You know, our sentience is not bound only to this earth. It's, it's part of space, and space is infinite. Mm-hmm. So the earth is part of space, we're part of space, and everything is part of space. And a lot of these transmissions are mind transmissions. You know, it's you, you can actually, it, advanced practitioners can get teachings from their masters across, if they're in India, they could be sitting here in the States and, and receiving a mind transmission through this state of consciousness, it, it it's kind of like extrasensory perception of sorts that develops with it, mm. but it doesn't need to develop with it. Um, so yes, it's very much planetary and off planet. Cosmic. It's a it's a cosmic practice. It's a universal it practice. Yes, and of course, not only through the cosmic um, network, as it were, but also just the multidimensional realms that we as sentient beings and other beings in our universe exist in. So this is, as, as C says, it's a, it's, a, it's a transmission of sorts through all, it can pierce through all realms. Have they been telling the practitioners that this is, you know, also taught on other planets for thousands of years? They speak to it in passing. They don't even really speak to it as, as part of their, one of the major tenets of their teachings. It's basically amongst all the other places it's taught, it's taught out there in 13 different solar systems. Um, and it's not, it, it's a teaching that's asking us to, it's, it's showing us how to wake up to our essential nature. So it's not something mysterious or mis- there's no mystique to it. It's, it's an actual real practice, like practicing yoga and getting in there. And it's, in fact, it's called Ati Yoga, which means the highest yoga. It's the yoga of mind. And um, so it's all it's saying is you need to wake up from the delusion of this life, which is, you know, we, we see we see ourselves as separate from all other things. And this isn't the case. In fact, we're like space. You know, we are the very space that allows our bodies to arise. And our awareness is one with that. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us how you got involved with this in the first place? Mm, maybe you answer that. Sure. Sure. You- began many years ago i mean i was on a quest from early age um this probably ties in nicely with your your show um i i came into this world feeling completely uh alienated from this world and there was a lot of dark energy around me when i entered this world that felt very much from another life and also from the inter lives that kind of bardo state that was very traumatic for me. And I came in and there was these beings that would just be standing next to my bed, just dark, heavy, cold like beings and just staring at me. And I was very terrified all the time and seeing, seeing things and also very confused inside, you know, it's like traumatized. So I was really searching for some sort of answer. And um, ultimately I, I landed on Buddhism, which I connected with in a very loose way. But when they, I started, I read one text, I can't remember what it was, but they started speaking of the barter realms and they started describing to the T some of the realms that I used to remember as a child, you know, like remember being like crushed and then distended and then re-crushed and the taste of it. 
And I thought, okay, wow, I gotta, I gotta go deeper into this. And this led me straight to Dzogchen. Uh, somehow I, I, I came across some passages in this book that spoke to Dzogchen, started looking through the index at the back and finding those teachers. And then I just, from there on, it was the only thing that ever made sense to me as a practice. Once you started practicing it, how did your lives change? Um, well, I'm sure I'll go first. I'm I'm newer to the practice, specifically the practice of, of Dzogchen. Um, and, um, and I've experienced a, a radical change in my um, overall perception of the world around me. Um, in particular, the perception of my inner world within me. And I feel that it's had such a, um, a calming effect on my emotional equilibrium. Um, I, I recognize emotions as they arise, but I allow them to just unfold and be. And um, it's removed that sense of judgment from watching how those emotions arise in me. And with that, it's removed my sense of judgment of how emotions arise in others. So I've really, really experienced um, a shift in my perspective. Um, it's also completely and utterly opened up my um unisphere into the uh, many, many different um, levels and, um, and essences of consciousness. And I see consciousness in everything. And, um, and I think to that, um, it's, it's a big learning curve. And it's, but it's one of expansive openingness. And, and uh, it just makes me feel on a, on a very sort of daily um, experience, I I feel extremely open and I feel very um, safe in that opening. And I know that this has been a direct result of of the Dzogchen practice. Um, And And, and for me, um, like I said, I was, I had a lot of anxiety and and a lot of fear. And, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles where there's a lot of interracial warfare going on. You know, everybody was kind of like beating down on everybody else. And so there was terror at every level. And, um, and I, I needed to get past that. I was also very shy. And so it's like, internally, it was fraught. And Dzogchen, just in practicing Dzogchen, you go in, you kind of like, you can kind of get below that whole conceptual network of, of ideas and emotions and sensations. And you just rest and you observe it all. And on its own, it all just disappears. As the space opens up within, all of that weird stuff and, and really troublesome stuff energy within just goes away it just like goes up like to the gods and it's just amazing actually earlier we were discussing that you could be here and a tibetan master could be on the other side of the planet but you can still connect with each other how do thoughts in your opinion travel at such great distances well that's that's a great question and um and c and i have been um steeping ourselves in research and um and again from an experiential perspective as well from practicing zochen um we strongly believe that consciousness is a it's a web of interconnection that literally exists between each and every being on this planet in this solar system in other solar systems across the whole universe and uh we believe that there is no, when you speak to the, uh, the concept of consciousness, there is no time, there is space, but space-time itself can be, um, can be experienced in one moment 
instantaneously as is experienced in another moment. And there is no time between those two moments. So you can have a communication of somebody on a level of consciousness in one part of the world or one part of the universe. And with that intentional consciousness, a message can be embedded in the network of consciousness. It can be instantaneously experienced and received and um, interpreted to the receiver at that moment. There is no, um, there is no differential um, time that it needs to travel to one space from one space to another space. And, and what we are finding, which is so exhilarating, is that uh, quantum physics is speaking exactly to that same mechanism um, when they're studying the, um, the, the bending of space-time and how also you connect entanglement. Yeah. an entanglement mm-hmm. between one particle and another particle and how we are now learning that it's about the opening of space-time to allow a wormhole to be created and you can instantaneously manifest from one space to another. That can come in the sense of thought, but we realize that this can also come in in the form of visuals, holographic visuals. I would assume that you'd have to get into a meditative state or somehow focus a thought to send it to somebody else, because otherwise our minds, you know, throughout the day are just filled with chatter. Yeah. Yes. This is the the, the conceptual mind is not the, the level of mind we're speaking to when we speak to this kind of instantaneous reception it's 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 like a radio it's like a radio receiver picking up on radio waves um it's it is the non-dual non-conceptual mind that you you do train to learn to get, enter in meditation the masters are there pretty much 24 7 but us practitioners were we're there only when we enter the practice and you, you're sitting for a while and then you you're training yourself to kind of tweak in you know, tweak with your own awareness, how to get in there and, and observe the conceptual mind and then allow the non-conceptual mind to rise up. And this is where it all takes place. Mm-hmm. You know, the information that you need. Now, I'm not in a position where I'm able to receive teachings from masters, but I, I take those teachings in with me and practice them within, inside, or not inside, but it's essentially you're inside this meditative space. Can you give us basic definitions of a conceptual mind versus a non-conceptual mind? The conceptual mind is the mind that's doing all the thinking, and it's driven by the sense of the I, like I am Sivan. That's this is my computer. You know, this is this. You know, these this I is the driving force of all duality. There's the perceiver, and there's this that's perceived, and. So the non-conceptual mind is the, the space that allows for that I entity to exist. And uh, I speak a lot of, to a lot of this in the book, you know, how to, how to just begin to observe your own sense of an I and how to actually even, you know, like find that it doesn't exist by in the meditative practice, you know, looking for the I in the foot, cutting off the foot so that doesn't distract you and then cut off the leg. It's not in the leg. And then you basically you're cutting off all these parts of your body it's an old Tibetan practice to the point where, you know, ultimately the head is gone. You're looking at the head and there's no eye in the head. And you, and you, if the more you do this, the more you disassociate from that strong presence of the eye. And this allows you to really more easily move into the non-conceptual state. Mm-hmm. And again, like considering that the eye is so, um, 
legated to the body. And this practice particularly works with us as sentient beings who are experiencing a human body. And this body is that which grounds the consciousness in this three-dimensional realm. And of course, when you disassociate and detach yourself from this relationship with the three-dimensional body you're able to detach yourself from the three-dimensional realm that we're in and you enter into these higher states of meditation where you can actually be fluidly with your conscious state you can be fluidly moving between these realms that are not they're no longer tied to the three-dimensional they're no longer tied to your identity with your body and that's where it gets really exciting (laughs) When you drop the I, do you at that point just become nothingness or do you become one with everything? It is the one with everything part because the nothingness, you know, you could say it's nothingness, but what's there is awareness. Mm -hmm. And we'll be sitting in meditation when you arrive into this non-conceptual state and what you're aware of is that the body is now within the awareness. And so, so is the universe. You look up in the, the Milky Way's up there as well, and it's all of of a oneness. And the awareness and space are, are are one. And then, as you kind of pull yourself out of practice, the eye kind of always comes back. And you know, the more you practice, the less it comes back, but it's always there um, because that's the nature of our body. That's that's what the body is doing. You know, it's it's an organic thing, so it really does hold that consciousness. And habit has us going back to the eye. But when you're in the meditative state, that eye is completely decimated. It, it, there's nowhere for it to hold on to. And really now the body is within it and you're just observing this, like this flesh within the awareness. And it's very, it's amazing. Actually. It's like, uh, it's like being in an airplane. I, I was thinking of this uh, the other day, like being in, in the airplane and the airplane is your body and you're flying through space. And then shifting out of that space of the airplane and becoming the space that allows the airplane to float through it. That's kind of the movement that takes place. Once you're in that state, do you start thinking about stuff or you just and say, okay, hmm, you know, you've got to that state. I'm one with everything. I want to see other realms and stuff. Or do you try to just stay focused that I'm everything? Yes. Well, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, with, with the practice of Dzogchen, once you enter into that state, when your individual consciousness has, let's say, sort of entered into the realm of universal consciousness, so there is no individual consciousness and in, in, in universal consciousness, it is all one consciousness, there literally is no thought. So at that point, your conceptual mind is left behind, let's say, for use of a better phrase. Um, And so you are at that point in a complete state of stillness and uh, weightlessness, bodilessness and thoughtlessness. And so you literally are not thinking in that moment. Now, what would be interesting, and, and C and I have discussed this, uh, what meditation practices could we use? Obviously, using um, the skill set that we've acquired through practicing Zochen, how could we then incorporate this um, entering into this state of consciousness to then use that in some way to then, um, as you say, enter other worlds or perhaps make contact with other worlds or perhaps expand on that state of consciousness to um to experience other realms and that's something that's it's very new to us but it's something that we've just started researching also to clarify there is when 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 you are 
in this meditative space, the thought, you don't stop thinking. The difference is that you're not connecting to the thought. Like you're observing thought as a bird might move through space. You observe a bird moving through space. Nothing moves in the sky. The sky doesn't crumble. So you're, there, there's no attachment to thought. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the, the awareness, our, our, our awareness being is aware of everything. It knows. And so when you're in this state, you have a state of knowing. And really, many of much of the thoughts that might occur is just an observance. It's not mm -hmm. really being pulled through as a, an embodied experience. Mm. Yes, and to second that, um, uh, traditionally speaking, Zochen, you meditate with your eyes open. So you actually have all of your five senses, your five three-dimensional senses open. So you can you can hear things, you can actually see things through your scope. Um, you They're can, basically you portals can, into your world. Yes, you could be touched. You could be, somebody could walk into the room and speak to you. And the ultimate practice is that, yes, you um, you are observing how your five senses respond to your three-dimensional world, but your state of consciousness is allowing it to arise with no attachment. So when you're doing the meditation, what do you actually do? Well, that's, that's the beautiful part about this meditation. It's like, it's like going, going into your bathroom and turning on the bath and going into a nice warm bath and just laying there and doing nothing, relaxing. And the teachings are very specifically saying to you, recognize your awareness so they're, they're what they say is recognize your own natural state of mind recognize it and and you don't really recognize it unless you get the teachings but once you recognize it, oh my god i've been seeing that my entire life i never paid any attention to it that one still place within mind that's always in the background then you recognize it and from there the teachings say rest and what they mean by that is simply relax and all you're doing is observing. You, you go in. So you're sitting in your medita meditation pose. You recognize a state that's not doing anything. It's still. It's not coming or going. Doesn't begin. Doesn't end. And you just go, oh, okay, that's it. And then you now you just, when thoughts come up, you observe the thought and let it go. And you just kind of, you settle into it. And as you settle into it, it begins to become more spacious. The, not, the conceptual mind becomes really quiet. And then wisdom begins to come up. All of the ancient wisdom that it's part has been with you forever and ever and ever, and it gets closed down in this body, it begins to rise in this state of awareness. And so they tell you to recognize it and then rest and observe. Mm. That's what they're saying. Mm. There's actually a beautiful chapter in the book, which is called um, The View. And um, it's using a beautiful metaphor explaining what it's like to arrive at the precipice of the Grand Canyon. And, um, and, and I love how C um, created this metaphor because it's, it's the vehicle that you drive to arrive at the view of the Grand Canyon. That is your meditation. That is the vehicle that you use to arrive at the view of your own mind. Once you arrive, the, the vehicle takes you so far. And that is the training of calming the conceptual mind, the training of just um, of just letting all of those thoughts just settle and letting the conceptual mind just sort of peel itself off so that it gives rise to the non-conceptual mind. And when you view the Grand Canyon, this beautiful, awe-inspiring space, that is when you're actually in view of your natural innate mind, the non-conceptual state. 
And at that point, the the vehicle that you've used to get there, you get out of that vehicle and you literally view. And it's beautiful because you, you don't keep driving. You're going to fall off the cliff, you know? So you, you know, this is what's so beautiful because many different meditations have very different, many techniques and they all serve different people in many different ways. So there's no right or wrong way to meditate. Um, but Chen, we particularly resonate with Chen because it gives you, there are some basic trainings just to actually lead you in your car as a vehicle to get to that view. But then when you recognize that view, you literally rest and observe. And it's, that's, that's this um, obviously beautiful moment when, um, you know, before of course the next thought arises, you know, but the idea is that then you just observe it from this state. Is it something that you have to practice more and more to kind of stop that, you know, to find that space and escape from the monkey mind chatter and try to find that space to rest. And then it, probably comes back yeah. and you've got to refocus again. Yes. And, and that's a positive. That's, that's a positive because that means we can all do it. Yes. We all have the ability to practice. We can, we learn how to cook. We learn how to ride bikes. We learn how to drive. This is another practice that's very attainable. We mm-hmm. can all do it in one lifetime. The practice is spending more and more time in this meditative state where you're no longer meditating. Now you're resting and observing. And the more you get skilled at that, the more you can bring it into your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so you can go anywhere in the world and anywhere even to work in the most stressful situations and just observe the chaos going on around you because it's no longer out there affecting you. It's now part of your awareness. Mm -hmm. Could you take it as far as you, like you said, if you were in a stressful situation and you could get to that zone where you're just, you know, completely in that space of your mind where you're relaxed and you're not really thinking and just observing and could possibly seeing all this action going around to you, wisdom will come to you to kind of help you navigate all this, you know, if there's problems or stress. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we've, I think we've um, experienced it um, in many, many situations. Of course, you know, the whole world has had a pretty crazy couple of years. And, um, and I, I've noticed um, a significant shift in my um, way of relating to that exterior world. And it's not that I don't care about what's happening. And it's not that I don't see the immense suffering of of others who are experiencing this life in such awful conditions and awful situations. Um, But it's it's a way of just being with that and all accepting of ourselves and others in that one space, sharing that collective consciousness. And that in itself creates a sense of calm and a sense of peace and also a sense of true care not based on judgment of their situation as opposed to my situation literally seeing us all as one big organism that is experiencing this life as consciousness together earlier you used the word bardo and i think Mm -hmm. that was in reference to the the time or the place in between lives can you tell us more about that well there's there's various bardo states being alive is considered a bardo state and then I'm so sorry. Let me stop. Let me me stop you. What is the definition of the word bardo? Bardo, I think, is like in between or a transition. 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 Mm -hmm. So when you transition from this life into the next life, that's a bardo state. 
And then when you transition from wakingness into dream state, that's a dream is another bardo state. It's one of the five bardo states. Death is another bardo state. Um, so when I was speaking earlier, I was speaking to the, between the life of my past life and then this life, there was that bardo state in between. There's also the bardo state of once you once you're now moving towards death from this body we're in this body and this is the part of our life now you move now you're moving you found you have a terminal illness and your body is now dying over a period of time that itself is another bardo state and that can bring another form of perception that's a that's a that's a state where you can begin to see your relatives from another world coming to welcome you into the next world and they're preparing you for that and you have clear insight and and visuals on that as well Mm. so that's another bardo state as well and i think the the buddhists they particularly highlight these states of bardo because they are recognized as opportunities to awake Mm. and that is why they are defined Um, so that is why the bardo of living it's from the day you are born till the day that you find out that you are dying you have a, in human terms, you have a, a long period of time. And within that bardo transition, there is an opportunity to awake. And so each of these bardos give you an opportunity to awaken to your consciousness. I don't know if this is your personal belief or taught in Zog Chen, but after this life, do you reincarnate back here or do you go to other planets? You know, obviously, people are being reincarnated here. We're, we just watched recently some episode on these children who are, you know, telling their parents, "I, you know, you're my second mommy. My other mommy's, you know, a couple of years back, or I was just killed a couple of years back. And the mom researches and like, oh, my God, this actually happened, you know. So, um, yes, you can be pulled back here. And especially if you're in a, if you're more of an awakened being like these Tibetan masters, they come back here purposefully again and again, and they have other masters finding them as children and then showing them all the old stuff that that master had. And then they, once they recognize that that's the old master, then they bring them back into the monastery and teach them so they could continue the teachings. Really, it's a choice. Mm-hmm. But I think most of us reincarnate wherever we're being pulled, you know, energetically and intellectually or consciously we're being pulled somewhere. We make a choice probably in that, that Bardo state of death or whatever it is that to, I'm going to go into that realm. You know, the more advanced practitioners might have that option. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, yeah, I also agree that you can be um, your karmic energy as it were, will guide you into your, let's say rebirth into a form, but I've, um, I'm very open to the idea that that form could be any form whatsoever in any part of the universe. Mm. And, and that just gets even more exciting from my perspective. Yes. Yeah, if, if you're leaving this world just blistering with anger and you're just a raging individual and you've hurt a lot of people, you're probably just going to be naturally pulled into a hell realm. You know, whereas if you're loving and peaceful, you're, you know, who knows where you're going to go from there. But I think the realms reflect the mind that, you are in the moment Mm -hmm. and you know there's no again there's no judgment there if you're angry you're going to go into an angry place you know that's that these are the manifestations that will just arise Mm -hmm. in your own and that hell realm could quite easily be a place on earth absolutely yeah or yeah dream states or whatever Mm -hmm. right i've interviewed like over 200 people who've had near-death experiences and Mm -hmm. every one of them has had a different experience and 
And mm. I think people will say, well, why do they all have a, such a different experience? And I think you've answered it is that depending on your mind. state of mind, that's where you're going to experience. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, if we consider that our our lives, our living lives as human beings are conditioned by the way that we think and react to situations, I don't see that as any different as how um, our consciousness reacts and behaves in other environments and in other body forms and in mm. other um, bardo states. Yeah. Yes. A lot of these people, when they're on the other side, are told that they need to come back and or they haven't finished yet. Yeah. Can you comment on that? Well, um, I, we have both just read this incredible book by uh, Mingyur Rem, Rinpoche, oh, yeah. and he is a great Tibetan master. He's the son of also a great Tibetan master, and he um, his whole book actually speaks to um, the the lead up and the uh, mostly the lead up to his near death experience. And as a as a Tibetan Buddhist monk trained in Dzogchen, he um, speaks so eloquently to his whole experience, and he actually writes very um, explicitly towards his him experiencing the diet, the bardo of the dying, he, and he how a, his body was literally dying. Poisoning. It was through food poisoning. He wanted to do a, a, a walking retreat in the world, so he kind of secretly snuck out of his monastery, who was protecting him. Mm-hmm. He's already an advanced master, and he's like, mm-hmm. "I'm I'm going to do the walking retreat like all the great Tibetan masters." And he went to India and within a few weeks, he got food poisoning. He, he didn't let anybody know that he was, uh, that he was leaving. So he had really nobody to reach out to and he dies. And he, through this, he's practicing. He's like, he's trying to maintain his awareness all the way through the death mm-hmm. stages of death. He says he was ready to let go and move on. He felt like he can awaken and become an enlightened being. Yes. And something pulled him. He realized it was he still needed to teach. He had made a commitment to as a bodhisattva to help others enlighten. That was his commitment, his soul's commitment to this life. And he literally, he pretty much passed over. And then his soul pulled him back. Um, and he awoke, um, a traveler had found him passed out and he awoke in a little local uh, restroom, uh, like a hospital. And his whole perception of, of where he was had kind of shifted even further, even though he was fully trained as a Tibetan monk, he, he just experienced life again on a whole new level of consciousness. And he's continued to be to be a great master today. So that's a fascinating book. If, if he's become a much better master, in my opinion. is interested. What was his name? Cause I need to get him as a guest. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. He's awesome. His name is Mingyur Rinpoche. Mingyur Rinpoche. Mingyur Rinpoche. Okay. Do you remember the name of the book? And the book is, I can email you. Something about I love life or I love life or loving life. Love Mm, I wouldn't do it justice. Yeah, let's we can email you the title okay. of the book. Sure, thank you very much. Yes. Earlier you mentioned that you had a lot of anxiety, and I believe Zogchen helps with anxiety among other things. How does it do that? Well, it's like um, you know, if, if you have a if you have a smoke in the kitchen, you know, you're cooking and there's just loads of smoke, think of that smoke as anxiety. Uh what that smoke needs is to be released into the space outside the house and so you know you open up all the windows and it just on its own naturally disappears so i was very 
impressed actually and a bit surprised looking back and realizing that my anxiety and uh, the fear and my shyness and even some depression had on its own totally disappeared as I was progressing in my practice. And as, particularly in the last few years when I really began to progress and I, I, was, I was really dedicating a lot of time to the practice, that it was, it was a simultaneous movement between deepening in awareness and totally losing, totally losing anxiety, fear, anger, all of the, all of the stuff that used to trouble me. It's, it's like an, it's like an old friend now that I can look back on. Oh, I remember you, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't arrive in me anymore. And, and, and again, it was, wasn't anything that I, I was aiming to do. It just happened to come with the practice. Mm. It's almost like the, um, the resistance that we have to those emotions Mm. disintegrates. And so then the emotions just have no, um, they have nothing to feed off. It's almost our resistance or, or yes, it's our resistance that increases the power of fear and anxiety. And once that resistance has gone, they've got, they, they fly by, they float by, they can't attach themselves to you. Some of my guests that are near-death experiencers talk about when they're on the other side, they drop the ego. They don't even yeah. care about this life anymore. It's kind of almost saying the same thing as what you're saying when you get into this meditative state. Do you think that as we exist on the other side, we are existing in that meditative state that you're trying to reach here in this realm? I'll quickly answer this. Yes, this is the yes. state that Rachel was uh, mentioning where we have these opportunities to awaken. Now, if, if we've not been practicing any tradition that points to our innate awareness, um, then we're going to miss it. And so everybody, when they die, that's the, that is the biggest opportunity to awaken to our natural state and remain there permanently. So when Ming Yuri Rinpoche, for instance, mm-hmm. he was excited actually to move into this state and let go of life because he realized that this was his greatest opportunity. So everybody arrives there and they go, wow, I watched my ego drop. Um, I recognize that I'm one with the universe and if you're if you've been training in this life, this is your moment to go. I got it. I'm in. And you you wake up. If you haven't been training, then this is a missed opportunity because the habitual mind is always going to kick back in, and you will your ego, your sense of I is going to pull you in some in some other direction, energetically and and you know like when you dream, you're kind of moving all over the place in dream. You have real, no real control, but if you can wake up in your dream, and a lot of great masters do, they just now use the dream for their own benefit for to get teachings. So yes, it is this moment of dying and near-death experience is, is a critical moment of awakening if you've had the teachings, if you've been practicing. Now, you said after you die, when you're over there, you may have the chance to wake up. Yes. What mm-hmm. do awake. you mean by that? Enlightenment. Just, yeah, which mean, which means you become like a Buddha. There, you know, the Buddha is the Buddha, but the Buddha is symbolic also. He, it, the, the Buddha represents who we are in our natural state. We all are potentially Buddhas, mm-hmm. and you awaken into this awareness being that is a timeless, endless, never-ending individual or <laughs> entity of sorts. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you at that point can choose where you want to reincarnate because that's where you're, because they all want to teach. They all want to, they all want to be of service to all, the rest of us who are still striving to understand who we are as individuals. And so this is the path. And so when we wake up, we wake up into our permanent self, which is, which is inhabits everything. Mm -hmm. Wow. Didn't mean to keep cutting off Rachel in that one. No, Sorry. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> this has been something that's been secret for thousands of years. Why has it been secret and why now is it open to the public? Mm, that's a great question. Um, you should answer that. Sure. Actually. Well, um, I personally think that consciousness is evolving and humanity is evolving and we're becoming more and more ready as a collective to get these teachings. Whereas uh, the past few thousand years has been a very uh, male-dominated epic. And it's also been... Um, uh, there's been a lot of shamanism, you know, we've, mankind has been connected to the earth more. And so there's been many different terrains for us to kind of explore. Um, but in the Tibetan tradition, they didn't, uh, they just didn't feel like you had to be ready. Mm. So I'm not exactly sure what the, what the problem was in letting the entire monastery know how to arrive there, but they, the the one Tibetan master who who understood Dzogchen was only allowed to give this teaching to one student in his lifetime, mm -hmm. and that one student can only give that teaching into one other student, and it was often done through, like a secret straw that was put in the, the other student's ear through a wall, so they had their reasons for this. I haven't really studied exactly what the reason is, but I think, I think. Consciousness is waking up because the earth is now at a precipice. Mm -hmm. Humanity now is at a, the timeline is now very real for we could come to an end in the next few generations. And I think that means I think anybody who's dying or anybody who might be on the precipice of dying is going to begin to awake, awaken. So I think these teachings are now becoming more and more accessible. And these masters are now willing to speak to them to more and more people mm -hmm. because this is occurring. Mm -hmm. That's my thought. Yes. And I totally second that. Mm -hmm. And with that, I do believe that as we become more conscious beings, we will begin to give birth to more conscious generations. So of course that takes a long time and perhaps it really has just take, taken thousands and thousands of years, step by step, step by step, as people become more awake and more conscious, they're able to give birth to a, a new generation who is um, who is just born with a, a, a more advanced state of consciousness. I mean, I see the younger generations today who take great care in the evolution of our planet and the ecological um, disasters of our planet and the humanitarian issues that we're facing and our racial issues that we're facing. And I see so many um, awake awakened younger generations and they're just born with that spirit and so i do believe that as we evolve in our consciousness this will then um, evolve into a in a greater collective consciousness and and thank goodness that the tibetan masters feel that we're now worthy of receiving mm. these teachings and i believe you said that there is um they have a prophecy within their um tradition that that the um that even though the Western society has been 
very much leading us all away from this path of consciousness. The Tibetan um, philosophies actually believe that it is in fact the Western states who can give birth to this new rise of Dzogchen leading yeah. us forward. There was one great master in Tibet uh, pre-Chinese invasion, I think it was about 10 years before, who had this vision that the Chinese were coming. He gave the date. He gave uh, exactly what was going to happen. He says, it's going to be a total mess. He says, most of you guys are going to be either killed or you're going to have to flee to India and Nepal. And he says, when this happens, these teachings can no longer be secret. They need to now be let, let out into the world. We've, we've nurtured them for many, many centuries. And now I think or a thousand years or whatever. Now we can, now it's time to, to spread these teachings. Um, and they recognize years in advance that this was the case. Would you even say that they would probably endorse your book to help get this Absolutely. message out there? Yes. I've been very careful not to betray in any way. Uh, and I'm not presenting myself as a teacher. I'm a, I'm a fellow practitioner. And when I go meet one of my teachers in the next few months, I'm going to be very excited to give him my book. Um, and I, I think he's going to be very pleased with it. Um, but it's also coming from a different perspective. It's not coming from uh, the master's perspective. It's coming from a practitioner's perspective, but one who has a lot, who's gained some insight and can use Western metaphors and speak to the Western experience um, as a valid one. And as, a, as we all have the ability, you know, and I was just as riddled with all kinds of, you know, the human condition as we all are. And, if I'm able to get this far in my practice based on my great teachers, then that's what this book is attempting to communicate, that there, there is a, a clear way forward for us. Earlier, we were talking about consciousness and about the web that maybe connects all our thoughts. And for example, I had a business where sometimes I would just, for some reason, out of the blue, think of a person, and then maybe a few days later, they would appear in my business. And then also... I've had guests that have seen UFOs or had contact with UFOs, and it appears that they're either mentally trying to speak to the UFOs, and there's the CE5 groups that meditate to connect with UFOs. Can you comment on any of that? Yes. Well, I haven't had a UFO experience, but I have had a number of experiences with ghosts. Um, and I believe it's, um, it's, a, it's a communication that happens on, from all realms. Um, and so um, I, I think I didn't really have many experiences when I, was, um, when I was younger, but when I left home around the age of 18 and went to university, it seemed that everywhere I went to live had other beings there and I had to share my bedroom with somebody or I had to uh, you know share the kitchen space with somebody wherever it was and and I so I just became very used to the idea that um, we are all beings in different forms in different manifestations and and some of those beings I experienced as um, just thoughts meaning they were there I felt the presence I didn't visually see them but they were there perhaps and I say sitting on the end of the bed, you know, they could have been sitting on the end of my bed and I didn't see a physical form, but I felt their energy presence and there was a presence. And with that, a visual came to me of, um, of them as they were perhaps in a female form before, um, but a very clear imprint in my 
mental scape um, of who they were, what they looked like. And then I would literally have conversations with them and they would speak to me and it would come to me in the, in, in the thought form. And I would respond quite openly and verbally to them. I'm sure some of them, my flatmates that I was listening to thought I was pretty crazy talking to myself in my room, but, um, but I had a number of these ex of experiences and, and I traveled through Europe and they would pop up here and there and um, and I had all sorts of really exciting relationships with different beings in a different realm. Um, I think that would be my firsthand experience of that transmission of thought through um, um, through different realms. And um, it's 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 exciting. I'm not sure how aware you are of the UFO community, but there was an Israeli general that made some type of statement about that there's a galactic federation out there and, and was speaking mm -hmm. about UFOs. But what was the most interesting thing I thought he said was that space is not what you think it is. Yes. What do, yes. Can, you, can you comment on that? I think space is exactly what we think it is, which is an emptiness. And space allows for everything to arise in it. All dimensions arise in space. All consciousness arises in space. Now, it's our various perceptions on that space that creates this multidimensional dimensional wor these worlds. So, um, if we're if we're entering into a higher level of consciousness, I think we have more access to various galactic entities and also. Uh, apparitional entities. So it's just about how, where are you on the, on the scale of consciousness? And some of us are just coming to this world completely, you know, multidimensional. They're, they're tapping into different realms and, and speaking to different beings. And that's their gift in this life. Others, others of us have to train. And, um, you know, I'm one of those guys who just needs, needs to train. I'm, I'm more of that entry-level individual who comes in and just practice, 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 and develop skill through practice. But I, so, you know, I could say that I was seeing things when I was young, but I think most children can because they're, they're not bound down by the, the, the teachings in our world that tell us to nonsense. Oh, that's silly. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, there's a, you know, you're talking to yourself or you're, you're making this up, you know? So then we have to relearn it. As we get older, we have to relearn those skills that are natural to us and, you know, that are natural to our own awareness. Mm -hmm. So I think I think it's on that level. I think he, he might have been really surprised because he's a military man. And, you know, this stuff doesn't exist until he has firsthand experience with it. And then it makes him rethink, you know, probably brings him back to when he was a child and says, wow, maybe this stuff, does, it does happen. Mm. And, and of course, you know, with regards to space, um, again, there's another beautiful chapter in the in the book, I think it's I Entity, mm. but it speaks to the fact that we as human beings on the quantum physics level, we are made of 99.99% space. And just that number is mind blowing, because that makes us realize that we are a holographic segment of this universal cosmic space that we're all existing in so we know that space out there is infinite we know that it's even continually expanding we know that um that there is so much space 
between one planet and another planet and one solar system to another solar system, one galaxy to another galaxy. And yet we actually are living examples of that same relative space within our bodies. If you were to actually remove the space from our bodies, meaning if you were to remove the space that exists between um, a proton and the edge of the atom edge, if you were to remove that space, our bodies in terms of matter would equate to just a tiny speck of dust. That is actually all our bodies is made of. We are literally, literally, we are made of space. We are space. And it's this space, although we have skin and bones, but it's the space within all of that matter, which gives home to consciousness. And so in the same way that we are moving bodies of consciousness, um, every single space that we move through is also that same moving space of consciousness. It is actually all the same. And this is now being proven on a quantum physics level. Would you think that our bodies then are manifestations of our consciousness in this realm? Absolutely. Absolutely. Emphatically, yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm probably going to have some crazy dreams tonight thinking about all this. <laughs> it's going to take me some time to kind of mold this over and think about it. Since you guys are both artists, how do you see the relationship between the meditation practitioner and the artist? Um, well, we, we both believe that um, art really is one of the final frontiers of our civilization it's where an artist can delve into um mindscapes thoughtscapes bodyscapes of of no limitation and where really the artist today is that individual who chooses to um transgress boundaries and borders and really push the limits of our human psyche and and even though they might be operating on an individual um, perspective, um, they really are um, a, f- a pioneer of that realm from a collective consciousness. They really are putting their creative process um, out there to receive messages and downloads and transmissions from the divine presence, which is consciousness. And so I think that a art practitioner is very much in a state of meditation when they're actually um, creating and an opening up the flow and allowing the flow of the, the consciousness to come through them and they become the vehicle to express that and share it back to our community. And, um, and, and we believe that meditation and meditation practitioner also uses creativity, as it were, to enter that meditative state because it's not necessarily that you... Um, immediately at least at the beginning that you immediately can just be in that meditative state you've got to use your creativity to inspire your being to enter into that meditative state so we kind of see the the work of an artist and the work of a meditationer as being today uh one of the last and few final frontiers of, of true divine expression I, I'm, I'm thinking that the artist might be the best meditation meditation practitioner because they allow themselves to drop the rules and, you know, the, the dictates of society and they enter their art as a form of creative expression. And in many ways, this is what we're doing as practitioners as well. We're, 
we're dropping all the rules of self and dropping all the rules that define us and entering into a space. And this is a, this is a, you know, throwing, you know, throwing your trust out there in a way that, you know, what am I getting myself into? And so the two are kind of exploring similar fields. One might be doing it with a bit more awareness and, or maybe more direction, um, but they're both very much exploring the same terrains, I think. I think many artists will say that, you know, it just came to me. Music, the yes. song just came to me. And I used to have to write stuff kind of like children's stories. And a lot of times they would come to me when I was doing things other than like I'd be cutting the grass outside and a story would yeah. come to me or taking a shower yeah. or something. I don't know yeah. if I, I don't consider that a, maybe you can consider that a meditative state because it's I kind of just so. like a, a, a state of doing nothing. Yeah, yes, I think that's it true. is. Yeah. I think, I think mo- most of the best art is coming when you just drop, drop your intention, you know, like oh, I'm going to create this piece or I'm going to, I'm going to write this piece. It's usually when you, you blasted through all of that effort. And then you're just a bit more, you know, you're, you're mindless or you're, you're kind of like, like you said, mowing the lawn or, or, and then being the, the jewels arise in those mm-hmm. moments. Yes. I know that I, I write poetry and some of my poems would, many of my poems would come when I was in a moment of trans transit. So I could be sitting on a train or I could be um, not while I was driving myself, but I could be a passenger in a car or I could be a passenger in an airplane. And this moment where um, I'm in a contained, a contained vehicle, but I'm moving. And so there's, I'm, I'm very much in the presence of impermeance because I'm just, I'm just, I'm just moving through some sort of space. Um, And yet, comfortably and in that moment I would just it would just stream and out comes my notebook and I I'd write and it would just it would flow as it would flow and and I would never go back and correct I would never go back and edit I would respect that moment of flow for what it was and I really felt that it was um it just like you said it just came to me in that moment and I would trust that that was what needed to come to me all right, time is flying by, so I need to switch gears with you guys. Can you tell us a little bit about your Riot Material magazine? Riot Material is just, um, I, I was really wanting a return to form of great art magazines being also great literary magazines. So incredibly good writers writing about art. And art, of course, is books, actual art exhibitions, film. I love film. Music music so really was uh, how do we represent art in all all of the arts but through the voice of an amazing writer mm-hmm. and so that's really what the magazine is kind of founded on that's the mission statement that's the the the, der- the driving force behind the whole magazine mm-hmm. again your book is called entering the mind can we find that on amazon or do we need to get yes. it on your website go to amazon you'll find it you can also find it through enteringthemind.com it, it'll take you right to back to Amazon, but there you go. (laughs) All right. So you have the book, you have the magazine. What else do you guys have or what else are you working on that you'd like us to know about? Um, Well, we did actually in, in preparation for the release of the book, we did put together a three part 
podcast of our own and it's a conversation between myself and C and um, we have that also on the website um, enteringthemind.com and that is open for anybody who might be interested in Dzogchen and hearing our thoughts and discussion um, with reference to key concepts that are brought up in the book so that might be nice for people to listen to if they're wondering I'd like to know more about this before buying the book. And then there at enteringmind.com, then um, you can also purchase the book there too. I believe that's all on YouTube as well, the podcast, right? Well, that's it is, right. Yeah. Yes, Entering the Mind um, okay. on YouTube. Yes, mm. yes. All right, well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Go on, go. <laughs> <laughs> My last positive message to everybody is... Um, Gosh, when you're doing what you love, things unfold and you are received with love. And um, I can't say how important it is to follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Your heart is as smart, if not way smarter than your mind, your brain. (laughs) So sometimes it's nice just to sit still, be peaceful, be tranquil and just um, give your thinking mind a break and just sit with yourself and let the insights naturally come from your heart. Would you like to add to that, C? Well, I think that was actually the perfect way to close it out because I, I couldn't agree more. The, the more you sit quietly with yourself, the more you're going to know the truth of who you are and what you need to do in this world. Guys, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest today. I really appreciate you. And I wish you massive success with your book. Thank, thank you, Jeff, you and you're so amazing, much, too. And, thank uh, you. Your questions are amazing. I look forward to us speaking more at some point down the line. Yes, and yeah. thank you for all the work you're doing and bringing these messages out to everybody. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.